Welcome into a quick timeout podcast. I'm your host, Coach Tony Miller. And in this episode, I talk to Alan Stein, author of Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best. Alan has been known in the coaching circles for years, working with groups such as Pure Sweat Basketball and the Hardwood Hustle. These days, he spends most of his time, though, speaking to the corporate world, talking to organizations about leadership, team building, and performance. Those of you who know Alan know he's a high-energy guy, and he does not disappoint this episode. His words will provide you with strategies and applications to immediately help raise your team's game. Before we start, thanks to 323 Sports for sponsoring the podcast. The basketball season may be winding down for you, but summer will be here before you know it. 323 Sports can provide you with t-shirts, basketballs, bags, everything you need for those summer basketball camps. So check out their site, 323sports.com, or contact our rep today at sales at 323sports.com. Now on to my interview with Alan Stein. I'm joined today by someone who had an impact on me as a young coach and has no doubt helped some of you through resources he's made available over the years. Today's guest is Mr. Alan Stein. Alan, thanks so much for working with me to make this happen. Oh, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a while. It's great to connect with you. Now, there may be a few who haven't kept up with you since you left the sports world. So could you kind of go through just a quick rundown of what all you've been up to? Uh, Most certainly. Yeah, it's been about four years now since I decided to leave the direct basketball training space uh, and shift my sights over to being a uh, professional speaker uh, more on the corporate side. So I really teach businesses uh, how to utilize the same principles and strategies and mindsets that I I learned through the game and learned through some great players and great coaches. And uh, yeah, so I still consider myself very involved in basketball and still in the know. I'm just not really on the quarter in the weight room training. One of those things that you have been doing as well as writing a book that just came out here within the last year or so. Before we specifically talk about the book, beyond the obvious title of it, which is Raise Your Game, can you kind of give listeners a gist of what that's about? Yeah, I mean, really, it is a a culmination and curation and summarization of everything that the game taught me. I mean, it's certainly focused mostly on my career, but there's even some childhood stories there. So it was really Everything that anyone had ever taught me about improving performance, improving mindset, uh, leading more effectively, becoming a better communicator, uh, all of that stuff, I I tried to compile in an organized book that would hopefully be helpful to someone, certainly in sports, but also somebody in business or really any other area uh, of life. So uh, it was a lot of fun, Ronnie, you know, digging back and thinking, you know, here's all these things that I learned from these players, you know, it was my job to teach them, but boy, they ended up teaching me a whole lot. And here's everything that all of my, my coaches and mentors implanted in me. And to just kind of organize all that and put it out in the book was, was a very fun and fulfilling process. I I really enjoyed it. Now you've kind of split that book up into thirds and we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about part three, which focuses on the, the team. And since we're talking to coaches, I thought building a strong team would be a helpful topic. So I'm actually going to start at the end of the book. And the topic that you had in one of those last two chapters there was on the topic of cohesion. Can you talk kind of about like what that is and why that's so vital to our teams and and maybe even how we know we have it on our teams? Yeah, cohesion is going to always start with caring. I mean, I think by definition, cohesion means to kind of bind. I, I almost think of like a like a glue or another adhesive where you get two things to to join and almost go from two to one, uh, one for, no, from two to one, uh, excuse me. And um, it always starts with the caring factor because people are more likely to buy in and to believe in and, and 
you you're, you're more able to earn their trust and their respect when they know that you care about them. And especially in the sports world, uh, players need to know that you care about them as a human being first and as a player second. Uh, and this is not only true from coach to player, but it's also true from player to player. You know, you want to feel like your teammates really care about you as a human being first and the fact that you're a good basketball player second. And um, cohesion is, is it shines its light most brightly when things are not going well. So when you have some adversity, does your team completely unravel and start to bicker and point the finger and make excuses and blame and complain and all that? Or do they actually bond together and get even stronger and figure out ways to get out of this adversity or, you know, in this losing streak or beat this team or whatever it may be. So uh, cohesion, probably hard to measure, you know, uh, objectively, but it's very easy to see subjectively. A story that really stuck out to me that you had in that chapter was about Greg Popovich after game six of their finals loss to the Heat. And like you just said, one of those moments that you're, as a leader, your team really needs you during that time to really help keep things glued together. Can you kind of maybe recap that post-game meal and then talk about the importance of what he did there? Well, I think that's one of the things that Coach Pop uh, has done as well as anybody in the coaching space is is his players know that he really cares about them. And, you know, it's, it's having empathy. It's saying, all right, you know, we lost the game tonight, but the key word in that is not the loss. It's the, we it's that everybody on the team is probably experiencing some frustration or some disappointment or some sadness. And how can we help each other out? How can we fill each other's buckets and do things to lift someone else up uh, who might be, you know, more distraught than you are after the loss. Um, you know, anytime we, and I do believe it's it's human nature to think and act in selfish ways. I mean, it's self-perseverance. I mean, we we always look for ways to to make sure that we're taken care of. But, you know, to have true cohesion, you have to be able to step outside of that. And you can't just sit there and go, you know, woe is me. We just lost game six. I'm really upset. This sucks for me. Uh, you got to be able to step outside of that and say, okay, well, this, this is tough for everybody. And what can I do now to maybe make this a little more uh, palatable for a teammate or for a coach, or how can I fill someone else's bucket? And when everyone's thinking that way, then once again, the cohesion becomes even stronger. It's kind of hard to get a player to do that, especially an immature player, if they don't really know kind of like where they fit. And it kind of leads me to the next thing I want to talk about. You, you talked about the four other things that were really essential to help with that team, uh, communication, belief, unselfishness, and clear roles. You, know, you don't have to go over everything that's in the book, but just, you know, can you quickly talk about those four and how, why you said that those four were things that were essential to having those strong teams? Well, let, let's start with communication. I mean, I, I really believe that I could make a compelling argument that every single dysfunction between two human beings or a collective group of human beings is within a couple degrees of communication or poor communication, miscommunication, lack of communication. Uh, communication is vital. And there's so many things to think about when it comes to communication. First and foremost is we have to realize we're always communicating something. And we have to control that message. I mean, even right now, we're just doing an audio podcast, uh, but I'm communicating something far beyond the words that I'm saying based on my energy level, my volume, my tonality, uh, my pausing. I mean, I'm expressing this message in different ways based on my inflection. And that's part of communicating. And I need to own that communication. Like I'm excited to chat with you and share with your listeners. So I want them to hear that excitement in my voice. Then there's also the unconscious messages that we send others, you know, uh, and that's 
not necessarily what we say, but it's more about what we do. And, you know, you can tell a teammate that you care about them and respect them, but then if you don't really make the time to listen to them or you don't pay attention to them or you don't put an arm around them when they're struggling or, you know, you keep showing up late for a workout, which I think is a sign of being disrespectful, you know, it really doesn't matter what you say because now you're communicating a completely different message. So from a communication standpoint, we just have to realize that we're always communicating with the rest of the world. And I just want to make sure that as leaders, as coaches, as players, we own that communication and we're proud of what we're putting out. Uh, and then the other thing I'll say about communication, which clearly I'm doing a poor job of at the moment, is the listening portion. Uh, is listening might be the most important part of communication and being able to strengthen that cohesion. And the best coaches that I've ever been around were world-class listeners. Yes, they knew tons of drills and they knew offenses and defenses and they had plenty of things they could share but their real genius was in their ability to listen to their players and listen to their assistant coaches to find out what was really needed. The other one that I want to talk about just is the clear roles. Uh, I had Jay Billis on a couple of weeks ago and he talked about roles a little bit. And so I won't ask you the same question, but something similar to it being, do you believe that it's more on the leader's shoulders and their responsibility, or is it the players and the people under them? to find what that individual, that subordinate, whatever it is, you know, whoever it is, what their role is. I think it starts with the leader. Um, I, the leader needs to crystallize what they believe that person's role is. And they need to make sure that they communicate that, you know, I know your role might not be what you want it to be, but it's what I believe the team needs it to be for us to be successful. And I, I, a good leader will crystallize that role, but then they'll also be open to feedback so that if in, we'll just keep using basketball as an example, if, if the coach tells a player, this is what I see your role is on the team, uh, a good leader will be open to feedback and open to listen that maybe the player has a slight disagreement. Maybe the player thinks that that won't be utilizing them to their best strength or that they could actually add more value to the team if they had a slightly different role. So a good leader or a good coach is going to be able to, to be very open to that. But however, whenever it's done, and when I'm saying it's done, it's not like it's a one-time thing. This is a, a constant recalibration. But if I have a player, a coach-to-player meeting, I need to make sure that when they leave that meeting, we are both on the same page. Even if someone doesn't agree with it, we're on the same page, and it's crystal clear exactly what that role is. There's no fog or no ambiguity. They know exactly what's expected of them. And once they leave and know what their role is, then it's up to them, the player, to star in their role and to embrace that role with everything that they've got. And I'm pretty sure I'm using a lot of the same terminology as Jay because Jay's actually taught me a tremendous amount about role clarity and embracing roles and so forth. So I think it starts with the leader, but then you have to get full buy-in and believe in for that process to continue with the players. As leaders and as coaches, it's not always you know what we do or what we say, but also what we allow on our team that's important. Those things that we allow can sometimes hurt either the growth of the team or the cohesion on the team or even the team becoming closer together and working hard. What are those? What are some of those things, either from things that you've observed from the sports world or from the corporate world, that if leaders allow to happen will really hurt the growth of a team? Well, I love the way you just positioned that because I, I do that in every single one of my keynote talks. And, and this is something I learned very early uh, in coaching. And I don't remember specifically who taught it to me in this, 
in this phrasing, um, but it stuck with me ever since. And that in coaching or in leading, you either accept it or you correct it. Those are the only two things possible. There is no gray area that every single behavior that your players have on and off the court is either something that you accept because it's in a line with your vision and your mission and your, your standards of excellence for your team, or it's not. And you have to put it in one of those two buckets. Uh, clearly, if whatever they're doing is something that you accept, then you need to praise it. You need to call it out and show appreciation for it because that which gets praised gets repeated. So if, if you know, a, a player is boxing out during a drill and you want them to continue to box out because you want to be a great rebounding team, then you need to praise them and, and, and show appreciation for them. On the other hand, uh, if, if it's behavior that is not congruent or in alignment with what you want for the team, then you have to be willing to correct it or to coach it or to get them to change their behavior. And uh, when you're doing that, now you have to figure out the best way to approach that specific player in order to make that, that happen. So that's what coaching is all about. That's why coaching is both an art and a science, uh, is figuring out, okay, this person's doing something that is not in alignment with what I want them to do. How can I use my influence to get them to change their behavior, change their habits, or, or change the way that they're performing at the moment? So to me, things get crystal clear when we can put them in either one of those two buckets, accept or correct and get rid of anything in between. I want to lean on your experiences that you've had these last four years because I, I, I'm afraid that sometimes we as coaches can get so involved and immersed in our field that we only listen to other coaches and we don't take experiences from those outside who can teach us a thing or two. So what are some lessons from those experiences that you've had that we as coaches should maybe be noting and maybe incorporating into our team building? I love the way that you just phrased that. And before I answer that directly, I'll say that I actually put that into practice myself. Uh, now, I've long had a, a, an infatuation with spoken word and with language and with professional speakers. I mean, I've, I've been devouring stuff in, in the, the self-help and the self-development space forever. So uh, long before I decided to become a professional speaker, uh, I've always been fascinated with that. So with that said knowing that I always wanted to become a better speaker, even when I was in coaching, I wanted to become a better speaker. Uh, there were two art forms that I would study religiously and still do to this day. Uh, one is hip hop and the other is stand up comedy. And I bring that up because you just said so perfectly that in order for us to get good at our craft, we have to be willing to step outside of our craft and study other crafts that could help us improve. And while I have no desire and, and certainly won't ever be, uh, you know, a hip hop star or a stand up comedian, I can learn from both of those different genres because both deal with spoken word, both deal with painting and imagery in the listener's head, uh, both rely on physicality and body expression and facial expression and tonality and all of the things that I talked about before, you know, there's a rhythm, there's a, a certain way to, you know, when, when you're, when you're in hip hop or when you're in uh, telling a joke in stand up comedy, like there's a certain process to how you articulate that and to how you build out what you're sharing. And I've just always been fascinated with both. And I, I certainly, I enjoy hip hop music and I like to laugh but I take it so much further. I mean, I'll even watch a comedian that I don't think is that funny because I know there's something that I can learn from them that could potentially make me a better speaker. So I say all that because you are correct. I actually think more people in the basketball world should be studying and learning from people in the business world. Uh, the inverse is, is really obvious. Co companies have been bringing in ex-athletes and ex-coaches and ex-military people you know, for decades to come talk to their teams. But I really think coaches should bring in 
and, and talk to more business people. Anyone that's an expert in sales uh, that knows how to sell something would add value to any coach because coaches are selling something every single day of their life. They're selling their culture and their values and their standards and their convictions. So uh, I think it's important to be able to see both ways. So while I do spend most of my time teaching the corporate world things that I learned in basketball, I'm always learning stuff from the corporate world that I can take back to basketball. And uh, to me, that's that's what's most important. And what I would say the one of the biggest ones, because I know this will finally answer your question and I appreciate your patience, <laughs> most companies they measure everything that they want to improve. They, they pay a lot of attention to the analytics. And I know analytics in basketball has really been growing. Um, but they, they take a look at, you know, how many prospects do we need to reach? Uh, what, what percentage do we close? What, what, how much do we make on every new client acquisition that we have or customer acquisition? Like they measure everything and they constantly look at the numbers. Now, they don't disregard the personal component to it. Uh, and it's not just about numbers. But one thing I, I notice in business is they measure a lot of that. And uh, a few of the basketball teams that I've been close with, they do that really, really well. Uh, there's a, a Queens down in a division two college down in Charlotte, North Carolina, near where Jay lives, does a phenomenal job of figuring out what metrics play the biggest role in whether we win or lose. And then let's make sure that we measure those, but more importantly, we practice those. If we know that these three or four things when done well, allow us to win the vast majority of our games, then let's design our practices around those three or four things. There's no need to do a whole bunch of time-filling drills that aren't in alignment with what actually helps us win. Uh, and that's a perfect example of a basketball team taking a business approach and saying, here's what we know makes us win, here's how we measure whether we're doing well with it, and here's how we're going to practice it. After observing and interacting with a lot of those leaders, whether it's a CEO or middle management or anybody there that you've had the chance to work with in the business world, what would you say are some of the common characteristics of those top leaders? They care about their people without question. You know, there's there's an old adage that if you're the CEO uh, of a thousand person company, uh, a thousand people don't work for you. You work for a thousand people, you know, um, and it's same thing that a coach should think, you know, uh, my 15 players aren't here to serve me. I'm here to serve them. And that mindset is vital. And that's one thing that I've noticed amongst all leaders. Uh, I've also noticed that whether in basketball or business, uh, leaders, they have very high confidence. Uh, they have very high self-worth uh, and self-awareness because they've put in the work during the unseen hours to deserve confidence and deserve that self-awareness. So uh, they're humble. They, they can recognize when they make a mistake or they make the wrong call or they don't do something right, but it doesn't shake their, their self-belief in who they are. Um, they, they're able to see the difference between I failed at this and I'm a failure. Those two things are not synonymous. You might've drawn up the wrong game plan and didn't do your best coaching job and you lost the big game. That just means you failed at what you were trying to do that night. That doesn't mean you are a failure. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, think those two things are synonymous and that they fail at a couple things and then it lowers their self-worth and self-value and they think they're a failure, uh, not great leaders. And then great leaders are also relentless about their own development. They know that in order for this company to get better or for this team to get better, I have to get better. They take full accountability and responsibility for that. Uh, that was one of my favorite things that, that Coach Jones, uh, the head coach at DeMatha Catholic High School, would always say to the team before they would break for the summer, would say, hey, if you want DeMatha basketball to be better next year, then you come back better next year. 
you know, if you want our team to have a better season next year, then you have a better summer this year. And uh, that mindset of personal accountability and responsibility, or as Jocko Willink would say, extreme ownership, uh, I think is vital. So those are three things that come to mind just off the top of my head. This last one goes to that point of just constantly improving and trying to improve yourself. And those who listen to this know that I like to ask this from time to time of our, our guests who have been in it for a while now. But I'm interested to hear from you, especially because of the diverse opportunities that you've had. If you could go back and talk to the younger 20s, Alan Stein, what would be the one or two pieces of advice that you would give to him? Well, the funny part is, and I love this question, is the 20-year-old Alan would have been too hard-headed to listen to the 40-year-old Alan. That, <laughs> that'd be the first thing I'd say is you need to be open. That when you're in your 20s, you might think you know everything, but you haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what you're going to know. So while I certainly had some really positive traits in my 20s, uh, kind of a know-it-all, I got this, you can't tell me anything uh, certainly limited a lot of my potential growth. Um, so that'd be the first thing. Uh, second thing is, would say, you know, learn to embrace and love your entire self. You know, don't, because we all, no matter who you, you could talk to anyone in the world. It could be who you perceive to be the most successful person on the planet. I promise you, they still have fears. They still have insecurities. They still have a handful of things that they don't do very well. You know, you could call those weaknesses and it's okay to embrace those things. I think I spent so much time uh, insecure and fearful of the things that I wasn't very good at, uh, that it lowered my self-value and self-worth the way that I looked at myself. I think earlier in my career, I had a lot of faux confidence where I, I pretended to be confident, but inside I really wasn't. And I would tell the younger Alan, like, it's okay, man. Everybody's got some good, some bad, and some ugly. Just own it. Uh, double down on the things you do well. Do some, you know, put in some internal work to improve the things that you don't. But just be okay with yourself knowing that you're flawed and, and that you're not going to be perfect. And don't ever try to get, uh, don't get stifled by perfection anyway. Focus more on progress. And then the next thing would just simply be uh, just enjoy the ride. Just, just have fun. You know, for me, I absolutely like to believe that I have a very sound work ethic. And that I do like to believe that I work really hard and I work smart and I work consistent. Um, but I also have learned to take a step away and, and enjoy some downtime and enjoy a vacation and turn the phone off and play with my kids. And, you know, the, the big word in society today is that is we should all be grinding and that you should rise and grind and wake up and grind and grind. And that word works for some people. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the word itself. I just know for me. I don't want my life to be a grind. I, I want to enjoy this because uh, as unfortunately we all were just reminded with, with Kobe's tragic and un, you know, untimely passing, we don't know when this thing's going to be over. So, so enjoy it as much as you can. And, and if you can find enjoyment in working hard and working smart, then all the better. Uh, but I, I let my happiness be much more of a guide to my life than any achievement that I'm going after. Great stuff. Before I let you go, Tell us about some of your new projects that you're working on. Well, there's two. One, I've got a self-published book that I've co-authored with a good friend of mine um, that's going to be a, kind of a one-off from what I've been doing. This one is aimed directly at youth sports parents. Uh, it's called The Sideline, and it's a survival guide for youth sports parents. We, we tried to come up with practical tips on how parents can make the youth sporting experience the most positive thing possible. Uh, I don't want to ever come off as negative or pessimistic. But boy, do I see a lot of 
really misguided behavior with youth sports parents uh, in the way they treat their children, in the way they treat coaches, in the way they treat referees. And while I do believe most of these people are noble in intent, uh, their behavior is far from it. And I'll go as far as to say many of their behavior, it's embarrassing. And I wanted to be able to not just highlight the problem, but hopefully contribute a, a, a small, easy to read guide that I think parents will find helpful in making the experience better for their kids. Uh, and then I'm also working on a follow-up book to Raise Your Game. Uh, Raise Your Game was all about raising your performance to a high level. This next book will be about how do you maintain that performance and not get burnt out? Uh, how do you sustain excellence for 10, 20, 30, 40 years? You know, when I, when I flip on the TV the other night and I'm watching Duke play Carolina and you're talking about two college basketball coaches of Coach K and Roy Williams that have both been coaching longer than I've been breathing and I'm 44 years old, that is pretty remarkable. And they both seem to still be just as passionate and driven today as they were the first time they blew a whistle or held a clipboard. I think that's pretty remarkable. So I want to uncover what we can all do to stay very passionate and intentional about the work we're doing. So those are the two big things I'm working on at present. I'm looking forward to both of those, especially the youth sports one. I've seen a lot of your tweets, and you are spot on, and maybe you have to use one of those in one of my college classes here. Absolutely. I would love that. I want to spread that word like wildfire because um, I do think, as I said, I think parents are – I think if you were to ask every parent, you know, do you want youth sports to be a positive, uplifting, empowering experience for your child, every single one of them would say yes. But then when you say, okay, well, look at how you treat referees, look at how you treat your son or daughter's coach, look at the things you say to them on the car ride home or at the dinner table, all of those things are a complete opposite direction of what you just said you wanted. And that's why I just use the term misguided, because I don't think they're maliciously trying uh, to be overbearing or to be, you know, bad youth sports parents. But unfortunately, their behavior is they are. Couldn't agree more. Well, that's Alan Stein, author, speaker, podcaster, one of the ultimate give back guys. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. I had a fun time. Thank you so much. Just really quickly, if you haven't heard yet about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will even distribute your podcast to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and other platforms so your show actually gets heard. You can even make money from your podcast, no matter the size of your audience. It really is everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again at the next time out.